باب الامر باتباع الجنائز الامر the order the command to باتباع الجنائز to join or to follow the funeral procession this is when the janazah is performed and then the body is taken to the burial site to the graveyard so in taking the body from where janazah was performed or where it was washed to the graveyard then following the janazah all right is this something that is correct yes it's not just correct it's actually al amr people have been commanded to do this and this is of course for who for the men to follow the janaiz hadathana abul walid hadathana shu'batu an al ash'ath qala sami'tu mu'awiyah ibn suwayd ibn muqarrin an al bara'i radiyallahu anhu so bara' radiyallahu anhu said that qala amarana an nabiy sallallahu alayhi wa sallam bi sab'in bara' radiyallahu anhu said that the prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam commanded us with sab'r seven things he told us to do wa nahana an sab'in and he forbade us from seven things amarana first of all he ordered us bittiba' al janaiz to follow the janaiz the funeral procession secondly wa iyadat al marid and to visit the sick thirdly wa ijabat al da'i to respond to a caller meaning someone who's calling us we should respond to him wa nasr al mazlum and to help the oppressed wa ibrar al qasam and to fulfill the oath wa radd al salam and to respond to the greeting wa tashmit al atis and to bless people who or to you know say yarhamukallah to the person who sneezes wanahana and he forbade us an aniyat al fidda from vessels of silver wa khatam al dhahab and gold rings wal harir and silk wad dibaj wal qasiyi wal istabraq these are all different forms of silk so he forbade us from all of this now in this hadith of course what is mentioned is that the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam commanded muslims to follow the funeral procession and this is the reason why imam bukhari is bringing this hadith over here but we'll just go over this hadith because it has a lot of benefits for us so first of all we see that he said that the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam commanded us of seven things forbade us from these many things now it doesn't mean that he only gave us these many commands okay It doesn't mean that he only told people to do seven things and nothing else except for these seven things. No. It's just that here Bara radiyallahu anhu is mentioning these seven things. Seven does not mean only seven. Okay? So what are the seven things? First of all, following the janazah. And like I said earlier, this is for the men and there is great reward in it. Great reward in following the janazah. following it all the way to the graveyard and this is something that needs to be given more attention and as women it's your responsibility to encourage the men in your family to do this more often it really does not take very long hmm? that from the masjid where the janazah is performed then the body is taken to the graveyard it really doesn't take long and this is something necessary the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam openly instructed people to do this right he openly commanded people follow the janaza 
Sometimes people only go for the janazah of their family member or their loved ones. But if you happen to be at the masjid, all right, and janazah is performed, and you have the time, right, then for men, they should go to the graveyard. They should go. And this is a sunnah, and it's also fard kifaya. It's also an obligation upon the community. Meaning some people must do it. Yes, every single individual is not required to do it, but some people must do it. And also, remember that boys should be encouraged to do this from a young age also. Don't wait until they're grown men. Even when they're little, there's no harm. They should go because death is a reality. And the kind of lives that we live, we're so cut off from reality that we we need this exposure. So it's never too early for a boy to participate in a funeral procession. Why aren't women allowed to go? There is wisdom in this. Men are emotional. Women are also emotional. You will typically see that men do handle themselves better compared to average women. I'm not saying that every woman is like that, but typically you will see, even at the janazah prayer, you will hear women crying. The men are crying, but they're able to somewhat control themselves. Women cry, you know, they sob. They're more emotional. I've witnessed this myself where women will just grab onto the body of the deceased and they will not allow for it to be taken. You know, they do get emotional like this. There must be some wisdom behind it. Women are not forbidden from performing the janazah prayer. That is something allowed. They're not completely forbidden from going to the graveyard. No, you can go to the graveyard. But when the janazah is being taken, then at that time, this is something, this is a responsibility that has been given to the men and men only. And there's also benefit in this. Because then everything would be left to the women. I mean, there are some things that are exclusively for men. What does it mean? Men must do it. Right? Women cannot do it. Don't expect women to do this. This is men's job and they must do it. And we have seen that in so many other places where, you know, something can be done by men and women. Typically, who is it left to? Who is it left to? Women. Whether it's house-related work or, you know, even in organizations, you see more and more women getting involved in administration or in even your MSAs. I mean, who's generally more active? It's the sisters. Right? Because this is within us. You know, we'll we'll say, okay, fine, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. So this is a responsibility that has been given to the men. So following the janazah. Secondly, visiting the sick. Visiting the sick. Sick person, whether he is in his home or in the hospital or, you know, whether they are able to leave the house or not able to leave the house, regardless of how sick they are and regardless of what kind of sickness this is, it could be physical, it could be mental. You know, when a person is unwell, then they deserve that somebody should come and visit them. Somebody should come and visit them. And it's not just when they are, you know, they had a major surgery and they're at the hospital. No, Even if they are suffering from depression, they're suffering from extreme anxiety. And you know that, then it's your job to go and visit them. And of course, there's also great reward in this. 
that if you go in the morning, then many angels pray for you. Go in the evening, again many angels pray for you. And again, this is fard kifaya. This is fard kifaya, meaning it is obligatory upon a community that at least some people should go and visit a sick person. The third thing is responding to a da'i. Ijabatu da'i. What's the translation in your book? Accepting invitations. This is only one meaning of ijabatu da'i. Da'i is who? Anyone who calls. So anyone who calls you, and it doesn't always have to be a dinner invitation, right? Or a walima invitation. This can be any invitation. When someone is calling you, then you should respond. And of course, if it's your mother or your father, an elder person, a sick person, your grandmother, your grandfather, who may be in your house and they're calling you now for the 10th time, right, to adjust something in their room, what should you do? You should respond to them. Ijabatu da'i. And remember that ijabatu da'i, sometimes this is wajib. It is obligatory on you to respond to a person who is calling you. And sometimes it is not obligatory. So when is it obligatory? It is obligatory when they're calling you for the removal of some harm. Okay? Like for example, if a person is drowning, if a person is getting attacked, if a person is in danger, and they call you for help, then it's your job to... Islamically even, you are obligated to respond to them with whatever that you can. And remember that when it comes to a dinner invitation or a walima invitation, then at times this could be wajib, obligatory, meaning for you to respond and go. Okay, And at other times, it may not be wajib, it may be good for you to go. It may be recommended that you go. At other times it could be just okay, mubah, permissible. Sometimes it could be makruh. Hmm? And sometimes it could actually be haram. It depends on the situation. It depends on who is calling you, why they're calling you, where they're calling you, what they're calling you for, and what they're going to do when you go to them. So remember, ijabatu da'i, while you are supposed to answer someone who's calling you, this is not general, this is not a blanket statement. You have to analyze the situation that who is calling me, for what, what's going to happen over there, what am I supposed to be doing right now? And based on that, if it's something that is allowed, then it's okay for you to go. If it's their right to call you, like for example a mother or a father, it's their right to call you, then it's obligatory on you to go. And if it's someone calling you to something sinful, then don't say, oh, we should not... Refuse invitations, you know. So I have to go. No. Again, it depends on your situation also. It depends on your situation also. That if you are, Sheikh Ibn Uthaymin, he mentioned uh, what kind of invitations you should go to and what kind of invitations you should not respond to. Okay? So I'll just go over them very quickly. He said that you are required to respond to an invitation where there is nothing objectionable. For example, you know the person who's calling you is calling you because they read something online. They sent you like five messages about it. And now they just have to talk to you about it. You know that. And you don't want to entertain any conversation like that. You're disgusted by it. So you know that they're calling you. 
you ignore it. Why? Because you don't want to backbite. You know that this person is going to talk to you about that. Right? So you don't respond. Or, for example, they message you and they tell you they want to talk to you about an issue which you don't feel right discussing with them. You have the right to reject that phone call. Because they're calling you to do something that is munkar. Alright? Somebody is calling you to their house or to their party and you know that there is going to be such things happening over there that are going to constantly annoy you. Hmm? So in that situation, instead of going and getting upset and being, you know, yelling at this person, yelling at that person, it's better that you don't go there. Also he said that the person who invited him should not be someone whom it is obligatory to forsake. Like for example, if it's a person who you should not be hanging out with because every time you hang out with them, you end up doing something wrong. Hmm? You end up doing something wrong. You end up going to a wrong place. You end up, you know, they're not a good influence on you. So they call you, you say, no, this is a kind of hijrah. Right? I'm not saying you have to become antisocial. I'm just giving you examples of when you can refuse an invitation. Also he said that, Accepting the invitation should not lead to ignoring a more important duty. This is very important. Accepting the invitation should not lead to ignoring a more important duty. What are your important duties? Hmm? Okay, like your salah. So if somebody is calling you for a wedding party at 10 p.m. in summer, for example... And Isha has not even started, for example. They're calling you at 10, and you know that it's going to go on until 2 o'clock or 3 o'clock minimum. And this is going to affect not just your Isha, but also your Fajr. Then in that case, you can say, I'm sorry, I cannot come. I'm busy. What are your other duties? Okay, if it was Ramadan, you would miss Taraweeh. Important. People call you for Iftar. Right? And you say, no, 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 no. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Cannot come, cannot come, cannot come. And then you feel so mean that what am I doing? I'm going to have no friends left. You know, nobody's going to call me ever again. But the thing is, if you go to somebody's house for iftar, then what's going to happen? They're not going to let you go right after iftar. And then you're going to miss your salat al-taraweeh. Right? So are you doing something sinful? Like somebody could actually make you feel very bad. You know, that, oh, you should accept invitations. The Prophet ﷺ instructed us to accept invitations. And here you are rejecting another iftar invitation. So can you do that? Because you will be enabled to perform your night prayer. You can. Right? You can tell them, inshallah, on Eid day. We'll have a lot of fun. What other duties do you have? Yeah. I mean, uh, as a student, you have to study, Right? you or your parents or whoever in your family is paying a lot of money so that you can get a higher education and you have a lot of work to do and if you start responding to every wedding invitation in the summer, when are you going to prepare for your midterms and when when are you going to write your papers and when are you going to study for your exams? When? And then there's one dinner after the other and every wedding is not just one party, right? It's not just one party. There's a girl's party first and then there's the other party and then there's the nikah and then there's a reception and then there's a walima and then there's an after party and way before that there's a wedding shower and then and then after the wedding there's like, okay, let's 
gather together because our friend got married. Right? Today one friend is hosting and then after one week another auntie is hosting and then a relative is hosting and it's just never ending. And it's not just one person getting married, it's like 20-30 people getting married. So you're every other day you could be at a wedding celebration. Right? And because of that, your studies are getting neglected. Your poor dad is working, paying for your education. Is it fair? That for weddings, you are compromising your education? And this is something that we need to also think about. Why? Why do we have to make our weddings so complicated? Wallah! Why? I mean... Has it ever happened with you that you go to a wedding and you really don't want to be there? Huh? How often does it happen? Tell me that. Huh? A lot, right? But for the people whose wedding it is, what do they want? Everybody should be there. And this is amazing. You know, for the people who are directly affected by the wedding, you know, they're very invested in that. But everybody else is just waiting to get out. They're uncomfortable in their clothes, right? Their makeup is so heavy, their jewelry is hurting them, their shoes are hurting their feet, right? They want to go home and get all their work done, right? Why do we have to make our celebrations so complicated? Why? Is it not enough to just restrict ourselves to one or two maximum? And even those, why do they have to be so long? I mean, we call people at six and start the wedding at eight. This is zulm. Wallah, this is zulm. Imagine how many human hours we waste. How many? And sometimes we, you know, personally, I have stopped giving any wedding lectures. Because what would happen with me is that people would uh, ask me to come and give a lecture at a wedding. I'd say, okay. I find babysitting for my kids, beg my husband, please stay home for the evening, watch the kids. He is sometimes leaving his isha in the masjid so that he can be home with the kids so that I can go give, give a wedding lecture. I go there, sitting, sitting, sitting. Three hours later, finally, the lecture starts and then they request, could you please shorten it? This is not fair. Really not fair to anybody. To the people that you invited, to the bride and the groom even. Because sometimes when the guests don't leave, they just come and they stay and they just want to party and have fun. And then the bride wants to be with the husband. right? And the husband wants to be with his wife. And then by the time the party is over, both of them are dead. They're tired. Seriously. They're exhausted. It's an unnecessary norm. And the thing is, it's very easy to comment on other people's weddings. The thing is, we have to change. And change begins from who? Who? Us. Ourselves. And if it's your wedding, you have the right to decide. You do. And put some pressure on it. That no, I don't want 20 events and I don't want my wedding to be at this time or that time and things should be on time it's unfair to the people because you know mashallah when there's so many people in our community and we love each other we want to be there at everybody's wedding 
But then it's sad when we have to say no, no, no all the time because you know that if you're being called for two o'clock, the wedding's not going to start until three. If somebody wants to leave, we make them feel bad also. So not just wedding, any kind of party that you host or gathering that you host, be careful. You know, pay attention to these things. And don't just use this hadith, ijabatu da'i. Right? That you have to respond to. You have to accept invitations. And then, you know, the other person doesn't even know what to do. So don't be unfair to people in this manner. Shaykh bin Ruthaymin, he also said that it should not cause any trouble to the person who is invited. Meaning the invitation should not cause any trouble to the person who is invited. So which means that if you have been invited somewhere and that invitation is causing you trouble, can you leave? Can you? Yes. Even before the food is served? Yes. Trouble does not mean that you don't know anybody over there. Okay. Trouble means like something serious. So there's no harm in not responding in this situation. The next thing after ijabatu da'i is helping the oppressed. And this is specifically nasril mazloom. Who is mazloom? Someone on whom zulm has been done. Someone who has been treated with oppression. So it's your obligation to help them. Notice it doesn't say when the Muslim is calling you, because sometimes we wait to be called by the person who is being oppressed. No. When you see oppression, then stand up for the victim. Defend the victim. Help him. Whether he is being oppressed with regards to his money, so you see that somebody is being clearly cheated, right, with regards to their money, and you see that, uh, or somebody is being beaten, somebody is being abused physically, emotionally, their honor is being attacked. So it's your responsibility to get up and help the mazloom. What about the zalim? What about the oppressor? Do you help him or her? Do you help the oppressor? Yes, you help the oppressor. What does it mean by that? Stop them from their oppression. Right? And the only way of stopping someone from oppression is not that you have to bully them or publicly humiliate them. That's not the way. Stopping someone from oppression is that when they're in front of you and you can do something to stop them, then you do something to stop them. Right? But uh, having online wars, right, in comments, under posts, this is not the way of helping neither the oppressed nor the oppressor. The Prophet ﷺ also said that, Unsur akhaka ظَالِمًا وَمَظْلُومًا then fulfill the oaths. And notice this is Ibrar al-Qasam. Ibrar. Now, Ibrar is from Bir if you think about it, isn't it? And what does Bir mean? Righteousness. Right? To be good. So Ibrar of a Qasam, Ibrar of a Qasam is to fulfill an oath that someone has put on you. Okay, that someone has put on you. What does it mean by that? What does it mean by that? This is, for example, someone saying, or for example, Hassan radiallahu anhu asked Abu Hurairah radiallahu anhu, "Anshudu kallaha ya Abu Hurairah." I adjure you in the name of Allah. I swear by Allah, O Abu Hurairah, you must tell me. 
Did you hear such and such from the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam? So Abu Hurairah radiallahu anhu was in a position of doing ibrarul qasam. So he had to answer him. You understand? So someone says to you, I swear by Allah, you must tell me. I swear by Allah, you must never go here again. You must never do this. You understand? This is also a way of uh, taking oaths. You know, one is that a person says, I swear by Allah, I will not go here. But this is someone saying, I swear by Allah, you should tell me. You should tell me. Now, why do you have to tell them? Because they took Allah's name. They're asking you in the name of Allah. وَاتَّقُوا اللَّهَ الَّذِي تَسَاءَلُونَ بِهِ Fear Allah in whose name you demand from each other. You ask from each other. Okay? So when somebody takes an oath like this in front of you, are you supposed to comply? Yes, you should. As long as it is a correct oath. Uh, and this is something that's uh, common in hadith literature. I remember as kids, whenever we'd come back from school in Pakistan summer, you know, it would be so hot, we would stop at this gas station to get slushies. And uh, every day we would come home with these slushies, and it became like a habit. My mom did not like that. Every day we we're stopping at the gas station. Okay, this is Pakistan, not Canada, right? It's different in Pakistan. So we're stopping at a gas station and then we're buying slushies every single day and we're coming home, right, wasting money and uh, eating unhealthy stuff, which my mom does not like at all. Uh, so one day, finally, she said, I swear by Allah, you will not go there again. And we're like, what does that mean? <laughs> and then we understood what that meant and we never went there again, alhamdulillah. Um, so this is Ibrarul Qasam. Okay. Uh, it's a very strong way of uh, stopping someone from doing something or urging them to do something. Then the next is Raddis Salam, responding to the greeting. Meaning when someone greets you, it's obligatory on you to respond to them. Alright? And this is Fard Ain, when you are greeted. Okay? But when you're in a group, okay, when you're in a group and somebody greets the whole group, then it's Fard Kifaya. Ibrar al-Qasam, depending on the type of Qasam then, if they're telling you to do something sinful, you can't do that. Like for example, something happened between two people, a couple got divorced, and you know the whole story, you were directly involved, so somebody is really interested in finding out what the whole story was, and they're like, I swear by Allah, you should tell me. Like, no, it's none of your business, I cannot tell you. So you're not going to fulfill that. But where they're asking you for something that's acceptable, then you should. Then tashmeet of atis, meaning when a person sneezes, then you also respond to them in the sense that when they say alhamdulillah, you say yarhamukallah. Then the Prophet ﷺ forbade some things of them, silver vessels. Aniyat al-fidda, silver vessels. And what is meant by this is uh, using vessels or dishes that are made of silver, and from other texts we also learn about gold, using these containers for eating and for drinking or for serving food. But these are dishes that are made of solid gold or solid silver. You understand? This is something that is not allowed. Using containers or dishes that are made of silver or gold, not for eating but for other purposes, is something that the scholars did allow. 
Why? Because Umm Salama radiallahu anha had a container of silver in which she would keep the uh, hair of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Okay? So that container was not being used for eating or drinking. It was being used as a container. So if you have a jewelry box that's made of silver, for example, it has a lot of silver on it, okay? then would that be okay to use? Yes, because you're not eating and drinking out of it. And the scholars have also distinguished between dishes that are made of gold and silver and dishes that are plated with gold or covered with some gold. You know, like there's a gold rim okay, or a silver rim. So some scholars did allow that. Where there's gold paint, they did allow that. You see in the hadith, the Prophet ﷺ said that do not drink from vessels of gold and silver, do not eat from plates of gold and silver because they are for them in this world and for you in the hereafter. Okay? They're for you in the hereafter. Just remember that some said that this is because it's israf. What is israf? What is israf? Generally translated as excess. Right? That is the meaning of israf. Don't think of excess as abundance and expensive. So if something is very expensive, it doesn't mean that that is israf. If you have a lot of good expensive things, that doesn't mean that that is israf. Israf is when you are using something for the purpose of showing off. You understand? Israf is when you are showing that you have a lot when in reality you don't. You're throwing a huge wedding party hmm? when in fact that money didn't come from your pocket. It came from other people. Like you're you know, demanding that they should contribute, they should contribute just so that you can throw a uh, big fancy wedding party. Right? Or it came from the bank, or it came as a loan. Why are you doing that? That is israf. Uh, israf is also when a person cannot afford something, and they are displaying the money just to impress other people. So israf is not to do with the object. It's to do with your reality, your intention. So some said that gold and silver, you're not allowed to use as dishes, because this is israf. No. The Prophet ﷺ told us, you don't use it because it's not for you in this dunya. It's for you when? In the hereafter. And a person could be doing israf even with china. Bone china. Or what is it? Crystal and things like that. Okay? Uh, so israf is not to do with how much something costs. It It depends on how you use it and with what intention again and you're not eating from your phone this is eating and drinking from dishes of gold and silver okay you can use dishes or containers of gold and silver for other purposes that's allowed eating is the only thing that's not allowed and that also is gold as an actual gold is used to make the dish if it's painted all right there's a different ruling for it then the next thing is gold rings. Gold rings. This hadith clearly states that gold rings are not allowed. Again, if you take only one text, you can misunderstand. Right? Other texts make it clear that this is for who? For men. Men are not allowed 
gold. And what is meant by this is that they're not allowed to wear gold. In this hadith, gold rings are mentioned. Does it mean that they can wear a gold watch, a gold necklace, glasses? Right? I don't know what else could be. Cufflinks, right? things like that. Can they wear such things that are made of gold? No. The reason is that the Prophet ﷺ once, uh, Ali who reported, the Prophet ﷺ once held, he had gold in one hand and silver, silk in his other hand. And he said, these two are forbidden on the men of my ummah. The men cannot use them. Okay, so this means that a man cannot use gold, alright, neither in his watch nor in his ring, alright, it's, it's not for men. This is for who? For women, because This is a woman, you know, she needs it, she wants it. And again, you could ask, why not? Why are men not allowed to wear gold? Okay, it's for them in Jannah, but it's for women in Jannah too, right? Inshallah. So why are women allowed and not men? Go ahead. Okay, this is an interesting point that men are supposed to do like, you know, rough sort of work and they're wearing gold, you know. They're like, you know, taking it easy. Alright, okay, go ahead. Men also like to dress up. It's beautification. Men also like to beautify themselves. Again, we can come up with different reasons, but at the end of the day, there must be some wisdom. Just as women are not allowed to go to janaza, all right, meaning janaza procession, men are not allowed to wear gold. You see? Now, okay, they don't resemble women. That's also a good point. Uh, you see, there are some distinctions that have been made in our deen between men and women. Men are given for majority of the rulings, it's the same. Men and women, same. But for many things, it has been clearly stated, this is allowed for women, not for men. Or this is allowed for men, not for women. Why? Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can decree whatever He wants. And this also reminds us at the end of the day that men and women, you know, we're not identical. We're not identical. We're not the same. We are different. And we have to accept this reality even if the whole world says otherwise or wants us to say something else. Men are different, women are different. Not in everything, in some things. Alright? Remember that things are, when it comes to food, clothing, uh, then um, things are allowed unless they are proven otherwise. Okay? Meaning in general, the things are allowed unless there is a reason for you to say that this is not permissible. So gold rings are not allowed for men. And then four types of silk. Somebody once said, they said if men were allowed to wear gold, women wouldn't get any. It was a joke they made. But uh, I think it has some some reality to it, I think. right? Because typically, typically what happens, the best thing is for who? For the guys. And whatever is, unfortunately, this is our culture. Right? That even as mothers, you know, mothers are guilty of this. That they'll, they'll save the best cut of meat for who? For the son. And for the daughter? What is it? Seriously. Well, my son needs to be strong and, you know, he needs to eat good and, anyway. So, alhamdulillah for this distinction, for this division. Right? That this is for men and this is for women. Of course. Okay, somebody asked about uh, diamonds. 
precious stones are allowed for men. They can wear it. Okay? So if, if a man got a ring of silver with, you know, like a diamond in it, for example, or a watch with diamonds in it, would that be okay? Yes, it would be okay. Um, four types of silk are mentioned and uh, these are all forbidden for men. And of course, what is meant by that is wearing silk. Uh, and this is permissible for women. Okay, Women can wear silk and men cannot wear silk. Now, the scholars actually did allow men to wear silk that is a small portion of their clothing. And this is based on the hadith of Umar ibn Khattab anhu, who said that the Prophet ﷺ forbade the wearing of silk except for an area the width of two, three, or four fingers. You understand? And this is reported by Muslim. So if there is, uh, sometimes what happens is that in men's pants, for example, the pocket is made of silk. The pockets are made of silk. Why? Because they're inside, they constantly touch the person, so they're, they're supposed to be comfortable, and so it's supposed to be made of silk. Or, I mean, pockets is actually a large amount, but let some scholars did allow, for example, a tie that's made of silk. Because it's not that big. Four fingers, for a man at least, it would. The width is enough. Okay. So in this hadith, it's very clear that men have to follow the Janaiz. Let's just quickly read the next hadith also because it's the same. Haddathana Muhammadun, Haddathana Amr ibn Abi Salama, Anil Awza'i, Kala Akhbarani ibn Shihabin, Kala Akhbarani, Sa'id ibn al-Musayyab, Anna Aba Hurayrata radiallahu anhu kal, Abu Hurayrata radiallahu anhu reported that Samiratu Rasulullahi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam ayakul, I heard the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam saying that Hakul Muslimi ala al-Muslimi khamsun. That the rights of a Muslim upon another are Five, meaning a Muslim deserves five things from his or her fellow Muslim. What are they? Raddus salam, to return the greeting. So if somebody greets you, it's their right that you respond to them. No matter how angry you are, no matter how upset you are, hurt you are, whatever, if they say salam to you, you have to answer them. Raddus salam. Wa'iyadatul marid, and to visit the sick. When they're sick, you should go visit them. وَاتِّبَاعُ is And to participate in the funeral procession. وَإِجَابَةُ الدَّعْوَةِ And to respond to the call. وَتَشْمِيتُ الْعَاطِسِ And to bless, to say, يَرْحْمُكَ اللَّهِ to the عَاطِسِ To the person who sneezes. تَابَعُهُ عَبْدُ الرَّزَّاقِ قَالَ أَخْبَرَنَا مَعْمَرْ وَرَوَاهُ السَّلَامَةُ عَنْ عُقَيْلِ Alright, inshallah we will conclude over here. Subhanakallahumma bihamdik. Ashadu an la ilaha illa anta astaghfiruka wa atubu ilayk. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.